Hi everyone, it is Paola Diana and this is Unleashed, the Game Changers. Today our guest is a successful barrister and a famous author. Thank you, Tony Kent, for being here with us today. Oh, th thanks for having me. <laughs> so I love your story because uh, you you're coming from an Irish family, a working class yes. family, and you became a famous barrister in London. That is quite hard. And on top of that, you became also an author and you just published your third book. Yes, yesterday. Compliments, first of all. Thank you very <laughs> Congratulations. Much. Uh, let me know a little bit more about your uh, childhood and uh, why you became a barrister. Well, I was, um, I was brought up in West London. I was born on a council estate in Northolt and raised there. <clears throat> and um, that's not really where you expect a barrister to come from. There are quite a few barristers from normal backgrounds, I discovered once I became one. Yeah. But I think once, when you're living that normal background, when you're a child and you're, you're actually a part of that normal background, you don't realise that that's an option. Yeah. And so I, I don't think I had any idea what I wanted to do for a very long time until I was, I think, about 14 years old, and I went to see a trial. And I have to admit, the person on trial was my brother. Oh. Uh, he has had his troubles with the police for quite a long time, really, for a lot of his adult life. He was older than you, I guess. He's older than He's me. Older. He's five years older. And on this particular occasion, he'd been accused of having been involved in a robbery of a jewellery store. So on this occasion, and this is unusual, we knew he hadn't done it. And that isn't because we were in any way under the impression that he wasn't a criminal. He was. He did things wrong and generally he didn't get family support for that. But on this occasion we knew he hadn't done it. And the reason we knew that was because the police had told lies. And they had told lies about finding things in my parents' That's house. terrible. It's terrible. It is terrible. And there was a particular police officer, in fact, who was uh, notorious in our area when we were growing up. And he would, it didn't matter who you were, even, even I suffered from it. And I was a sort of good kid trying to study and trying to do, do the right sure. things. Uh, and even I would be sort of just clipped around the ear and for, for no reason. And he'd make up stories about people. He was a, he, he's a man who should never have been a police officer. Of course. But this particular case was driven by him. And he told lies about what was found in my parents' house, which was uh, entirely untrue. They would never have allowed anything in their house. And um, the result of that was we all went along, unusually, to support him. And ordinarily we wouldn't have done so, but we did. And I watched, watched this trial, I was 14 years old, and within 15 minutes I completely forgot my brother was on trial because I was completely taken with what I was watching. I was watching this barrister who I now know. Um, he's a That's lot older amazing. now, but I know him now. But I was watching this guy who was just the most impressive thing I'd ever seen. And he, took, and he was defending your brother. He was defending my brother. And he took the lies apart over the course of three days. And at the end of it, the, trial, the case was kicked out. And I remember saying to my mum, that's what I want to do. I want to do that. That's amazing. So this case changed your life. Yes, it forever. did. It did. I love these stories. And the barristers are very expensive from what I know. I mean, at the time, um, your family was paying this no, barrister? Or? Um, no, legal aid. He had legal aid. Okay. Now, legal aid still exists. Yeah. Uh, it used to be very well paid. Uh, and this barrister, yeah. I'm sure, was being very well paid for what he was doing. And um, so the, the, the beauty of of legal aid and, and the way the system worked. It was almost like an NHS. Sure. But for the law, uh, the theory being that if you, if, if the government bring a case against you, yeah. 
they have all the resources of the state to pay for it. They can pay for experts, they have investigators, they have everything. And so it's only right that the government should pay for your side as well, if you, sure. if you can't pay for it yourself. So everyone deserves justice. Absolutely. But this is changing now? It is, unfortunately. It's, it used to be the case that everyone had legal aid. And that was probably questionable because I, I have a friend of mine, for example, who represented a, a very famous criminal called Kenny Noy. And Kenny Noy was uh, tried for a murder. He killed somebody on a motorway. There was a road rage attack and it was a knife. Mm. I won't go into the details, uh, probably because I know too many of the details <laughs> and they might not actually be in the public domain and I might not realise. Uh, but he killed this poor man. And he was worth about £200 million and yet my friend defended him for on free. legal aid. Mm. So my friend was paid, obviously, but paid by the government. So that was probably a bit too, too far that way. Yeah. But it's now gone way too far this, the other way. Now you cannot get legal aid if you earn over a certain sum of money. And that sum of money is not a lot. I think it's How about £40,000. So if, you're, if yes. your income is £40,000, I think if your income after tax and after certain expenses is 40000 mm. you can't get legal aid. That's just crazy. Yeah. Because... A, a good barrister and a good solicitor for a decent case are going to cost you into the hundreds of thousands. So hundreds how, of thousands. If it's private for yes. one trial. If it's private, yeah. Wow. Now there's a lot of work goes into that. I mean, it's it, that that would be the case that they live and breathe for sure. a very long time, and and that's not just the barrister's fees. That's the that, that's VAT. That's yeah. the investigation. Uh, the investigation of anything that needs to be done. That's the solicitor's fees. That's the overheads of the office that have to be paid for when they're not working on anything other than this case. Um, but in any in any event, private fees are are relatively high and far too high for somebody who is just over a £40,000 no, threshold. No, I agree with you completely. So, so it's gone way too much the other way. Yeah, so what, what do you suggest our politicians should, should do in order to change? I would, well, so many things. I mean, it's a much wider question. Uh, but in terms of, of that one yeah. issue, they should raise the threshold, raise it to maybe £100,000, yeah. which I think, I mean, that's it, a, a sensible number, isn't it? 100000 yeah, absolutely. So actually, not a huge amount of people are earning that. And it shouldn't be a huge amount of people who are being forced to pay for their own representation. So raise it to, I mean, this is an arbitrary number. I'd need to look more into it to know the right number, but say £100,000 would make a big difference. But then there's also a huge scandal that doesn't get much, um, that doesn't get very much uh, publicity. And it's called the innocence tax. Okay. If you pay these hundreds of thousands of pounds for your own representation, yeah. and you are found not guilty, so the crowd, so you're an innocent person in the eyes of the they law. They should reimburse you. The government will only reimburse you what they would have paid if you'd had legal aid. And legal aid rates are absolutely terrible. This is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's terrible. There was a particular uh, Tory MP who was... Uh, he was tried for a, I think it was a homosexual sexual assault. Yeah. And he was, he was acquitted, exonerated. Yeah. And I think it bankrupted him. And he came out to say, well, this is terrible. And it was pointed out, well, you voted for it. You actually voted in favour of this a year before it happened. So I don't have a huge amount of sympathy for him. Of course. But I have a huge amount of sympathy for anyone else in that, yeah. in that situation. Yeah. It's just, it's terrible. It's, yeah. There's so many things that need to be sorted out that we could be here for, for a month. And also if they're paying so low, you know, the, the barrister doing uh, this uh, um, legal aid, yeah. I mean, it means that they're not good barrister defending poor people. Is well, it true or not? There are less good barristers than there no. were. There are still some excellent barristers out mm -hmm. there. There are a lot, of, a lot of barristers will now only really do private work. 
Uh, I only really do private work. Yeah. Uh, and it, if you look at it this way, that's against everything I stand for. I come from a, 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 a very average background. I, come, I don't come from any money. And I instinctively would want to defend people for, who are also from the same And you kind did of, for a while, right? Uh, and I did, yes, for yeah. a long time. But they cut legal aid rates so much, year on year on year, they kept going down and down and down, that it got to the point where, as somebody who doesn't come from money, I would be basically poor if, wow. if, I, would, if I were to continue to work on legal this aid. That's incredible. And because I don't come from money, I therefore can't now represent people who don't come from money. I can only sure. represent people who do, because they can afford to pay me. Sure. Uh, and I'm now part of a system, and I hate this, I am part of a system that is effectively justice for the rich yes. and a lottery for the poor. That's not to say that legal aid guarantees you a bad lawyer. There are plenty of good ones who are driven and who are, uh, who, have, who, who they're not in the position that I'm in potentially to, to be able to turn away and say, sure. I only do private work. I can do that because I, I set up a firm with a friend of mine and yeah, we, we, have a, we, have a very, we have a good source of work. There are some great barristers out there who may not be in that position and they're still working on legal aid, but they're struggling. They're really struggling. A lot of them are going bankrupt. They are literally, yep, and a lot of them, they're, they're very, they're struggling and a lot of them are leaving. And worse than that, this is no, so wrong. no one's coming in. The, the average legal aid solicitor in this country, legal aid criminal solicitor is now aged I think it was 48. They so should be in their late 20s, early, yeah, early 30s, course, yeah. coming in while others have early retirement. No one's coming in, because why would you? No, of course, because you invest a lot of money, studying, a lot of time. Yes. It's really hard. Yes. And well, I, I was very lucky, because yeah. I, I, I was in a great chambers. My chambers was, was it was like the, the Man United, the Man City of Barristers Chambers. Yeah. And so we had all the best work, and I was very privileged. What's the name of this one? It's called Two Bedford Row. Okay. Um, it's the chambers of Jim Sturman QC and Brian Altman mm. QC. If you read the front page of a newspaper and there's a crime on there, it's probably them involved yeah. one way or the other. And I was there for 12 years and it was a great way to start. It was the best training you could have. And I was thrown into great cases early. And so I was able to build a practice as a kid with no money. Yeah. I was able to build a practice and earn plenty of money moving Amazing. forward whilst getting myself into a position that I'm now in where I can do the private work only. Most anyone coming in now wouldn't have that luck because all of that there's no there is no money to be earned in the new in the new stuff now. Um, they just can't. I'm going to tell you something, and this is completely true. Yeah. And it sounds glib, but it's true. If you are in your first ten years of practice, you will earn more money. You will take home more money as a barista in Starbucks than you will as a barrister in a criminal legal aid chambers. This is insane, Tony. That is completely true. A barista in Starbucks earns more. Yes. Than a... Yes. So our, our our system is wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's just completely. Uh, it's completely uh, skewed. Wrong. It's yeah. completely and utterly skewed. I mean, when it's I say about the barista, I mean if, if you're doing comparable hours, if you're both sure. working the same amount of hours, the barista will be earning more money. Unbelievable. It's insane. Who's going to come in? How? How? Who's? What's the next generation of judges? In fact, the next generation of judges is my generation, I guess. But yeah. what's the generation after that? So we are not attracting talent no. anymore. We might attract some rich talent. Yeah. We might. The thing with the bar is it is ahead of the game and has been for a long time in diversity. There are 
I th good. There's, that's there, good. there's a shortage, it must be said, there's a shortage or that has traditionally been of black barristers. Okay. But there's a lot of Asian barristers um, and there's a lot of female barristers. It's at least, it's it's more than 50-50 in the newer generation I'm female. I'm really happy about that, you know. I, I, I mean, I thought you would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is some criticism that there are less ju female judges and less female QCs and less Asian judges and QCs. Why do you but, think But that criticism is ridiculous. Uh -huh. The reason there's less is because this diversity has only been there for, say, 15, 20 years. It takes 15 or 20 years to become experienced enough to be a judge or a QC. I understand, yeah. You can't just say, well, you're a woman, we need the numbers, so yeah, here you go. Yeah. So the reality is any criticism of the diversity at the top end is actually criticism of diversity 30 years ago. Of course, yeah, yeah. But if you look at it in the last 20 years, 25 mm -hmm. years, there are more female barristers than male barristers coming through. There are more female QCs than male QCs coming through. The same is true in relation, less so, but still less in terms of Asian barristers. There is, obviously, when you work out per head of population, yeah. There is a problem in terms of black barristers. There, there's a shortage in that, in, in that, we accept that. But overall, diversity at the bar is well ahead of the game. But not anymore, because now no, no, none of these people can actually achieve this career unless they come from money. Because and the that's so bad. And that's terrible. So it's the likes so of me, I couldn't be a, I could not have done. If I was coming through now, I'd have to go and do something else. That's so sad. We, we really should try to change this. I think what we need, unfortunately, mm -hmm. is more exposure of it, more people, people to understand. I know. Oh. I know you campaign a lot on Twitter yes. and I follow you. And, and if you uh, see people on Twitter, yeah. the responses I get are ridiculous. Yeah. Such complete ill-educated responses of people who've just read the front page of the Daily Mail. They, they don't know. They don't know. But they don't want to listen. And that's the problem. Because they read the Daily Mail and it's like, well, they must they will read that instead. But that's the problem of our society now. Yes. You know, people, they don't want to read long, uh, you know, and uh, difficult mm. things. They just yeah. prefer to read, you know, like few sentences, the titles uh, and, uh, I don't know, a Facebook post. Yeah. Uh, and they think uh, they're educated. It and does. It, it's so one it's of my ridiculous. big bugbears in yeah. life is that we, our big ethos in the world now seems to be everyone's opinion is as valid as everyone else's opinion. Oh, I hate and that. The reality I is hate that, it yeah. just isn't. I know, I know, I know. Uh, if, if I'm going to have an yeah. argument with a heart surgeon yeah. about someone's heart condition, he is right and I'm wrong. I, I, I agree with you, absolutely. But unfortunately, we live yeah. in a world where that just doesn't happen. I've had arguments about boxing. I, I, I'm a huge boxing fan, as you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, I've studied boxing. I boxed for a long time, but I've studied it as well. I've, I've loved the history of boxing. The arguments that I have with people who just, they've decided, or some guy down the pub has decided this is right, they've taken his word for it. I had an argument just recently about uh, Mike Tyson. Yes. Somebody was saying, greatest heavyweight ever. He's not. Um, very exciting, but he's not the greatest yeah. heavyweight ever. It's famous. It's famous. Absolutely. Yeah. And their argument was, well, if he hadn't gone to prison, he would have never have lost. I said, but he lost before he went to prison. How are you having this argument and you don't even know that? You know, this is, uh, he lost when he got old. He was 24. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and just, you don't know old. these things and yet you're yeah. telling me I'm wrong because... Yeah, yeah. Everyone's opinion means the same as everyone else's. I know, this is something I hate about. Unfortunately, mm. this is the result of social media that are great for certain, you know, things. Because, yes. of course, we can spread, uh, you know, uh, the word uh, of important cases. But on the other side, you're right, everyone. And yeah. even the trolls or the crazy of the village that yeah. once were only, you know, related. Uh, now they're the president. Their own community. <laughs> yeah, now they're, yeah, exactly. They're the president. <laughs> Which is terrifying, isn't it? It's <laughs> truly terrifying. If there was ever a time, um, yeah, given the coronavirus, that we're waiting yeah. to see what happens, yeah. if there was ever a time that you needed someone with intellect and talent in charge, and we've got 
I know. Donald Trump and I Boris know. Johnson. It, it's really scary. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's, it is. But let's uh, talk about uh, more, you know, positive things. Yes, sorry. <laughs> so uh, let's go back to when you were a boxer, because I, I know that uh, when you were doing university, you decided to be an amateur boxer or you were a professional. I was, I was a boxer for a long time. Okay. Um, I, I, I started boxing when I was 12. I think I, I, think I was 23 oh, when I had my last so fight. early. Well, when I, I, I had my first fight at 12. I had my last, I think, at 23. Okay. I boxed for my entire life. I come from a boxing family. So as soon as we could walk, we were, our hands went up and we were told to make that. fists and learn how to throw punches. Um, I went to, I, I was, I did box in university. Uh, I, I boxed before and after, but um, I ran the boxing club in university. I, yeah. I, went, I went to Dundee University and I hadn't intended to go to university because going back to the whole wanting to be a barrister, my, my mum had always said to me, don't tell anybody that. Because <laughs> she encouraged me to do it, but coming from our background, that was like saying I wanted to be Pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, but she, you know, she'd say, well, it's really, yeah, work So she it. must be so proud of you that now you've I hope so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she is, she is. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm very obviously happy about that. Yeah. But, uh, but she would always say, you know, keep it, keep it quiet. And so as time went on, although in my back of my head I always wanted to do that, I started looking at other things. And I wanted at one point to join the army. And my mum wouldn't let me join the army because coming from an Irish family, um, being a paratrooper and what they did over in Ireland uh, was not, yeah. I hadn't thought it through. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, so when she wouldn't let me do that at 16, I thought, well, I'll just wait till I'm 18 when I don't need to have the mission. So I did my A-levels. I didn't work at all for my GCSEs. I passed them, didn't pass them great, but I, hmm. you know, I very rarely went to school. I was tarmacking and with my dad ah, and so you were in the, earning money. Yeah. And then when I was 16 to 18, I went to school. I didn't do a huge amount of work, but I did my A-levels and I got very good grades. Uh, and at that point, my mum said, well, maybe you should try to embarrass the thing. Maybe you should actually try yeah. and do that. So I hadn't applied for university. And everyone else does the whole system and they go off and they do this. I'd done nothing. I hadn't even, I had no, no intention of going. So I had 24 hours to find a university. Tony, 24 hours. 24 hours. And, <laughs> this is and a story. So I, I just read a, I read a load of prospectuses and, and the only one that mentioned a boxing club was Dundee. So I said, right, we'll go to Dundee. That's the one. So I chose my university because it had a boxing club. Okay. When I got there, I discovered that every university has a boxing club and Dundee's was terrible. <laughs> Uh, and so within six weeks of being there, I took over. Um, well I, I, I became the captain and the coach and everything else. Amazing. Uh, and then the, within a year, we were the British University Boxing Champions and um, because we just sort of did it properly. Wow, well done you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and then you started studying, I guess, uh, very... Yeah, when I was there, I, I started yeah. trying. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite so easy. <laughs> so what made the difference in your mindset? When did you have this shift and, and you decided, uh, oh, I, I really want to study more? And Because, because I, I know it's difficult, you know, for someone not used to go to school every day and yeah. to study. Well, if, if I'm honest, I've, I've never, even at university, uh, even at bar school, I've never studied quite as hard as I should have done. Because I, 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 I hesitate to say this, but I, find, I, I think I chose the career that I was suited for. Yeah. Because I found it all quite easy. And, and yeah, and, yeah, quite clever, let's but, say that. So, yeah, but I, I, yeah. I don't think I'd have had that same you are ease talented, if I uh, was studying something else. But I think I was just, yeah, I was I lucky to find a uh, thing that suited me. Yeah. And so I, ne I didn't really study that hard until I became a pupil. Okay. Uh, and a pupil is, is after university, okay. after bar school, it's your apprenticeship. Okay. And once I was a pupil, which, you know, the, effectively an apprentice, <clears throat> then I discovered that there, was, um, that there was work to be done. Mm. 
And so. it was at that stage. It wasn't that I had a change of outlook or a change of ethos. It was simply that I couldn't have done it without it. I had to work hard by that point, which is you know helpful because that's the bit where you really start seeing how a barrister works and sure. how the industry, the industry and the profession works. And at that stage, I realised that okay, now now I've got to now I've sure. really got to turn it on and try hard. And what about? Uh I mean, famous clients or cases that you followed during your career as a barrister. Can you mention um, some of them? I've, weirdly one? enough, I've had a, I've had some very big cases. I've had some very well-known cases, but well-known cases, unless they're things like the Great Train Robbery or, or horrible, nasty murders, don't last in people's attention. So people won't remember them. Um, yeah. if, if it was at the time, you'd say, oh, I read about that in the newspaper. But they won't remember them. I was involved in the biggest ever, ever cannabis manufacturer in the country where they were it was such a big business they were finding hundreds of thousands of pounds rotting beneath floorboards and now it would be legal (coughs) now it would be almost legal uh, (laughs) Um, there were cbd oil like you know and a hemp yeah and and yet there's a lot of people still serving custody uh, prison sentences for (laughs) it oh my god before you guys start earning out of it maybe release them Um, but no 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 one sees it that way Uh, so there was that I was involved in the biggest ever credit card fraud conspiracy in the country, which was very interesting from a from a book point of view, because it was clearly something to do with Russia, oh. and it was clearly something to do with whatever is the new version of the KGB. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't talk about any of this at the time because uh, it was just a crime, but it was obviously being designed to undermine part of our currency system. It's very interesting. That's but, really bad. But the most famous one, weirdly enough, was somebody who wasn't famous at the time. And it was it was a very small case, but it was for Anthony Joshua, oh. um, who is, as you know, yeah. the world heavyweight boxing yeah. champion, one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he, it was the year before the Olympics, and he was arrested for possession of cannabis with intent to supply. And often you'll see references to this in stories about him, and they always talk about his conviction for drug dealing. He didn't have a conviction for drug dealing. I won that case. (laughs) He had a conviction for possession because he had it, and there was no way around that. We could never get past that. But there was no conviction for intention to supply. So well done. So you saved his career. Literally, because he would not have had, if we hadn't achieved what we achieved, he wouldn't have been given his license in order to um, box in the Olympics. And then there would have been no Anthony Joshua. So, wow. and in fairness to him, he's very grateful because he still sends us ringside tickets. So. I'm sure that's great. <laughs> Which is always good when you're a boxing. <laughs> what about the future about boxing? Do you think we will see uh, Fury and Joshua? We will. I'm okay. I'm completely convinced we will. Uh, there'll be another. Fury has to fight Wilder first. Joshua has two mandatory defenses, um, and I then think we'll have Fury Joshua. But I think it will be in Saudi Arabia. Oh, of course, they they are the only ones with a lot of money now. Well, it's it's going to be career ending. Um, I don't think either one of them will box after that. I think Fury will win, and I think will win very convincingly. And I think that Joshua will retire after that. Um, and I don't think and I don't think there's any any challenge left for Fury after Tony, Joshua. L- let's have another conversation unleashed <laughs> after that match, okay? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just see, it's on record now. I've said, yeah, I've said, it, I've said it out loud. <laughs> No, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I don't know as much, you know, about boxing, so I can't really say anything. But I, Fury I'm, I'm is curious. Fury is Fury would have been a good boxer, not the champion necessarily, but yeah. a good boxer in any era. Yeah. Uh, whereas Joshua wouldn't. Joshua is, yeah, he's, he's he's good, but he's not an all-time great boxer. I understand. 
But listen, all these cases that you followed, I mean, uh, they are part of your books now because you wrote three thrillers. Correct? Three thrillers, yes. Tell I'm me, writing the fourth now. Yeah, tell me. Wow, you're amazing. I don't know how you can <laughs> seriously do all what everything that you do. No sleep. Just don't sleep. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> okay. How many hours do you sleep, by the way? I've got no idea. <laughs> more than my wife, who keeps having to get up with, my, with our of son. Of course. <laughs> so tell me more about the stories. Okay. Well, um, the, the, the main characters, the two main characters in my books, it's a series of books. Each one of them is designed to be read as a standalone. You, you don't have to read any, all of them to read any of okay, them. Okay, yeah. However, I obviously want people to buy and read all of them. Of course. <laughs> so there's two main characters who appear in the first um, book, which is Killer, Killer Intent. Yeah. Uh, one of them is a chap called Joe Dempsey, who is, funnily enough, a criminal barrister from an Irish family. Of course he is. He is. <laughs> is your alter ego or no? Um, he didn't start out as my alter ego, and, and there's a reason for that. He was absolutely not an alter ego. I made him, I made him young, well, not younger, but sort of slimmer, and he's the same height as me. <laughs> but everyone, all heroes in books are six foot two, so I'm, you know, I couldn't change that. But in other, every other respect, he's, he's slimmer, he's better looking, he's better at his job, etc., etc. Uh, so the reason that I made, tried to make him separate him from me, um, and he actually is fully Irish as opposed to Irish brought up in England, okay. uh, was because the idea for him came from something that was said to me in a bar mm. uh, a long time ago. When I was about to start pupillage, uh, I met somebody I'd been to school with, and he said, oh, how are you being? It's been a long time, etc. And this is somebody who knew about my older brother, who, as we've discussed, in and out of trouble. And I come from a huge family, huge, huge Irish family. My mum is literally one of 17 children. 17? Yeah, I, and I think, I'm pretty sure I have over 100 first cousins. <sighs> and yet people always sort of pick on the black sheep. They always think, well, that you're, you're, and so for some reason, we had a reputation based upon that one person of hundreds. Yeah. But yeah, that's the way the world works. And this chap in the bar said to me, you're going to be a barrister. You're going to be a criminal barrister. That's amazing. You've done so well because you come from a family of villains. <laughs> and I do not come from a family of villains. <laughs> I come from a family with one petty thief in it. Um, and I was quite annoyed for a second. Of course. And then I just thought, what a really good idea for a book. Have a barrister who genuinely does come from a family okay. of villains. So the main character, So that Michael. became Michael. Okay. And because that was the inspiration, I felt he has to not be me. Because people are going to say that's me. Sure, yeah. Uh, and to protect me and to protect my family, I thought, you've got to push him away. And the first book is all about him going home. Um, he gets into some trouble because he's a barrister. It's not really about him being a barrister. But he gets into some trouble and he has to go home for protection. And it's a political thriller. And uh, there's another main character, Joe Dempsey, who's an intelligence agent. And he's chasing down the people who are chasing down Michael. Amazing. Um, and it's, it's all about the British government and Northern Ireland and the peace process. So that's the first book. It's, uh, it did very well. It was a Zobel Book Club um, pick. And that's kind of my way, but that, that's very much in my wheelhouse of, of, of writing. How long did it take for you to write Killer Intent and then to publish Killer Intent? To write Killer Intent took a long time um, because I wrote it about 15 times. Um, I started it when I was 23, when I had that conversation, 22. Started it when I was 22, uh, went, I put it away, went back to it when I was 32 wrote it, left, let people read it, rewrote it. This is perseverance. It was just a passion. I wanted to finish it. And I never really intended to write anymore. I, just I wanted to finish this book. I had the idea when I was 22 that I could be a lawyer and a writer as I am now. In order to do what I do now, I've had to go through so many changes in my career to, to, to get out. I've left Chambers, uh, the amazing Chambers that I was in. Yeah. I had to leave them. 
Uh, everybody thought that was crazy. It was like I was leaving Man United to go and kick a ball against a wall by myself. Um, but I had to do that because I couldn't have available time as a member. It would be too busy. Yeah. So I've had to make huge, huge changes in my career in order to be a writer and a lawyer. Uh, but when I was 22, I just thought that was possible. I thought, oh, I'll do both. But it's good to think <laughs> that it's possible, you know? If not, you would have never started exactly. in the first place. Exactly. So. But then it took 10 years to even get back to it. And it took that long to write it. And then to get it published was just a nightmare. I mean, uh, I used to have to go to book fairs. I, well, all the people, everyone seems to have this problem. Yeah, you, everyone. You, it's crazy. You send books in and, and then you get rejections from agents. And when you read those rejections, it's, it's quite, you can tell quite quickly that they haven't read the books. Because the reality is they get too many books to read. There's only a certain amount of num hours in the day. Yeah. There are too many books sent in. And if you're not, there are, I always figure it that there are four piles. And the pile number one, you'll be guaranteed to be read because you have a contract. Yes. That's me now. And that's great. Yeah. Pile number two, you're famous. And so your books will sell. Yeah. And therefore, we see things by Katie Price, you know, terrible things. And yet they're all on the shelves or Lily Allen or just awful books that are on the shelves and they're selling because they're famous people. So they'll always read those. The third pile is recommendations. So if someone they trust recommends a book, it might get read. It goes in that pile. And if you're lucky, it might get read. Then you have the massive pile that is everything else. It's what we refer to as the slush pile. And the slush pile, if, you, if you're lucky, they might read one out of ten. So J.K. Rowling, yeah. for example, very famously had, yeah. I think, 11 rejections. Yeah. And it's always said, that's always put out there as if... That's unbelievable. How can Harry Potter, you know, have been rejected? They didn't, they didn't read it. They weren't even that's reading it. That's the thing, they weren't reading it. Yeah. Uh, and it's, everyone looks at it, it's almost like, oh, when somebody said about the Beatles, oh, there's yeah. no... I think it was... Well, it wasn't Sony, that was too, too recent. But whichever record label had said, mm. oh, guitar bands are over and rejected the Beatles. That person was an idiot. Um, in terms of rejecting J.K. Rowling, they just didn't read it. There's no way you'd read that book, the first Harry Potter and reject it. Nobody would. They just haven't read it. And actually, Can you imagine the regret? <laughs> oh, you might, absolutely. Yeah. It was actually, I think it was an intern who read it in the end. They, it's from the slush pile, the massive pile. They just, by pure luck, they took it. Good. An intern at Bloomsbury. And then they went back and said, you have to read this book. Uh, as would anyone that had actually read it. And J.K. Rowling um, demonstrated this when she became Robert Galbraith. Yes. Which is obviously her, her, yeah, her yeah. pseudonym. Yeah. She... Put it, or she put the submitted the books under that name. She genuinely did not let anyone know it was her, yeah. and she then tweeted with names taken out. Out of fairness, she tweeted her rejections, and her rejections included one person saying, "Oh, we think we could recommend a good writing class for you," <laughs> um, and then the other one. That's insane. The next one was even worse. We don't think you're a commercial writer. So the single most commercial writer in the history of writing. It's J.K. Rowling. We don't think you're a commercial writer. Unbelievable. So it just goes to show you. It's, and I understand why they do it. I understand why, the, why they send out and pretend they've read it or they've given it. Yeah, because like, otherwise you'll just send it back in. Yeah, but like this, maybe, you know, they, they, they kill, uh, you know, all these uh, potential mm. authors who could be amazing. Absolutely. And then eventually some of them, they just lose hope and they stop mm. trying. Absolutely. So the ones who actually are going to be published are the ones like you, you know, who keep trying. Mm. Yes. Keep trying, keep There's trying. a huge amount of luck involved in it. There's a, a huge amount of luck. You yeah, have but it's to... also mindset, no? It's your strength, yes. your silence, I think. That, yeah. That's what makes a difference, right? I think, I think it does, but I do still think you need that bit of luck. Yeah. Uh, you, need, you need someone to read the book. And if they're not reading, if it's not getting read... But I guess the more times you send it out, the more determined yeah. you are, then the more, the more chance chances. you have that it yeah. will be read. Yeah. But it's a hard industry. <laughs> it's a, it's a very hard industry. Wow. And in my case, I'd actually given up. 
because I found myself one day in a book fair. And what you find in these book fairs is that the people who work for the agents mm. are, they're generally young girls. It's a very female part of the industry and they're all very, very young. They're all newly out of university. And I found myself one day at a book fair and I was talking to this girl and I was so grateful that she was talking to me. And I stood up and I thought, well, maybe I'll hear something back from this 22-year-old. I was 39. Maybe I'll hear something back from this 22-year-old. And then it just dawned on me, the day before, I've been cross-examining a serial killer in the Old Bailey. And I just got to the point, I thought, I can't, my ego can't take that. I can't go from having to have the ego that, that is required to do that. So then being really grateful that a child, effectively, yeah. had, had given me 20 minutes of their time. Mm. And I thought, no, that's it, I'm finished. And, I, and then, about a month later, I met somebody um, at, a, at an event mm. who was organising the event. And she was very much like these 22-year-old girls. She was very similar in her character. But she was into luxury goods and, and in the luxury industry. As you know, that's what my wife yeah. does. And more importantly, probably my father-in-law is well-known in that industry. And it just occurred to me, I thought, well, she's going to want to meet them. So I've got something that she'll want. And maybe maybe she knows. So I just got talking to her and she said, yeah, I know, I, yeah I'd love to meet your father-in-law. And yes, I've got some friends in publishing. I'll, I'll, I'll make an introduction. Uh, and then two days later, I get a phone call and I went to the Special Forces Club in Kensington, which is where she was. I know the club I yeah. was there. Once. And she was there with the owner of my of my now publishers. So not, not anybody on any level other than the man that the literally owner. owns it. <laughs> who was about to get on a train to Scotland, and he said, oh, send me the book. I'd love to have something to read on the train. And he phoned me from Scotland six hours later and said, uh, well, six hours after his journey, after his six-hour journey, and said, um, oh, let's publish that. Have you got any more? I love the story. And that's story. how that happened. And I now have an eight-book deal with them. I'm currently writing the fourth. I've got more to do. And at Christmas, I had a lovely message from him saying, at some point, we need to talk about the next ones. Well so, done, Tony. That's amazing. It was... It's a, it was it's, it's a lovely resolution to a to a difficult story. Absolutely, and I know you also you're, you're going to uh, make a drama for TV, right? Yes, we're working on it at the moment. Um, the rights are with a firm called Liberty Films. Yeah. Uh, producer is a man called Stuart Fennigan, who's an old friend of mine. Mm -hmm. His business partner is Duncan Jones, who is now a very well-known Hollywood director. David Bowie's son, he's famous yeah. for being. Yeah. Uh, they probably won't thank me for saying that because he's quite famous in his own right now. Mm -hmm. He made a wonderful film called Moon, yes. uh, one of my favourite films. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, a great, great film called um, Source Code. A very underrated film called Mute. I don't really understand. It's, it's, a, it's a Netflix film. Very, very underrated. I think it was his time to get... I would check it out. Do, do watch it. It's very good. It's just, I don't really understand why it got, got bad reviews. Rather than oh. neutral, got bad reviews, and it doesn't deserve them. And he made Warcraft, which is the most successful... Um, the most successful video game adaption of all time. Yeah, I know. So <clears throat> they do, uh, they produce uh, Warcraft? They produced Warcraft. He Warcraft. directed Warcraft, Stuart <laughs> produced it. And so it's that team um, who are going to, be, Duncan will be directing the first episode and the final episode. Okay. Uh, Stuart and I are working on how we, it, it's, it's a long process. We're working, it's been um, confused by my latest book, which is Power Play. Yeah. And the reason it's been confused by it is we were proceeding with Killer Intent, yes. but Power Play is very current. Power Play is, and this is pure fluke. I, I, I had the idea years I ago. I know. Tell, tell us more. Power Play is all about um, the question of who really runs the, runs, runs the White House. Uh, we have 
it begins with an explosion of a plane over the Atlantic, which kills uh, a controversial presidential candidate, who may or may not have some similarities to a certain yeah. person who lives in the White House at the moment. Uh, but he's dead in the first uh, in the first chapter as a bit of wish fulfillment. The question is, who killed him? Who put the pl the bomb on the plane? Was it a terrorist attack, or was it an attack that was designed to kill him? and everyone else was collateral damage. Yeah. And we have Michael Devlin from Killer Intent is defending the baggage handler, the Syrian baggage handler, okay. who admits to placing the bomb on the plane. Whilst Joe Dempsey is the intelligence agent who now works for the UN, is investigating whether or not, in fact, it was the president of the United States who was behind the bombing. Wonderful story. And the tagline is, the enemies are not at the gate, they're already inside. Which I love. Yeah, <laughs> and wonderful. So, um, and because I of can't that, wait to read the the. the well, I brought you a copy. One. Yeah, thank you. Um, and because it's so current, uh, our, our our issue is: do we now sort of step back, rejig a little bit, and just fly fly into power play as the first season? I understand. Uh, because yeah. it's, you know, killer intent is. I would like to think a good story, yeah. but it's a story we can tell with even with, after with the same impact yeah. at any time. Absolutely. Uh, whereas yeah. if we just rejig the chronology slightly, yeah. power play is like watching a story that's about now, yeah. which is very interesting because my next book that I'm currently writing. I was I going to ask you about that. Yeah. It, it's, this is not a lie, and this is starting to worry me. I started it in December, <laughs> so therefore it certainly is, and I had the idea years ago again, it was always going to be the fourth book. It's about a biological weapon, a virus, wow. um, that, is, that has been utilized by the North Koreans as an attack upon America. Yeah. Uh, so I'm now getting quite worried that it, I'm yeah. going to knock on the door from the FBI. You should. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Even though I still think that it's completely natural what happened with coronavirus. Oh, no, absolutely. I, I don't yeah. believe in uh, all oh, this. Uh, no, no, no. It's just, just it was cons <laughs> crazy stories. conspiracy. Yeah, I saw one crazy. the other day that suggested that it was Bill Gates <laughs> and he did it because he wants to dominate 5G. Come on. <laughs> because he needs more money. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is insane. He needs to risk killing his own nation in order. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Insane. But it is definitely very, very actual. I mean, mm. your story. They're incredibly current. And, yeah. and I, ha I, I could show you a document from 10 years ago where I put down 18 story ideas. I believe. And they're both on there. They're n it's nothing to do with now, but it's just they, the timing seems to have been. Well, with, with Power Play. I was actually going to write a different book, mm -hmm. um, but it was going to be about Joe Dempsey alone. Okay. And my uh, publisher said, you can't do that. They said, it's a series. You need to have Michael in it. Of course. Uh, because Joe Dempsey isn't in book two, which is a, which is a uh -huh. legal thriller called Mark for Death. Okay, yeah. Which yeah. is a complete, it's all, about, it's all about a serial killer and a trial in the Old Bailey. Yeah. And they didn't mind me not having Joe Dempsey in that because it was a continuation of the Michael story. Yeah, but people are affectionate to Michael. Exactly. Yeah, and my, so so yeah. I, I hadn't really worked out that by that point, Michael would now be my series character. Yeah. Hopefully by the end of Power Play, they, Joe Dempsey will have kind of gone up there as well because it's very much his book. Yeah. And it will be back to an equal footing. However, after Mark for Death, it wasn't an equal footing. It was the Michael Devlin series. I understand, yeah. And so I suggested, well, we're going to have, the next book will be Joe Dempsey. And they said, no, it can't happen because people will be looking for Michael. Uh, so I had to try and think, can I have a, how can I fit Michael into the story I have with Joe Dempsey, which I couldn't. There's just no place for him at all. And then we were in Rome, which is obviously a place beautiful that... Rome. Beautiful Rome. Yeah. Beautiful Rome. Uh, I was in Rome with Victoria, with my wife, yeah. and we were going to meet our friend, um, who is a Monsignor from Dublin who lives in, in Rome. And I looked him up to get his number on the phone. And you know you never think of people, I always think of you as, as Paola, not Paola yeah, Diane. Yeah. And Victoria, Victoria, not Victoria Christian. Yeah. So I 
John was John. But then I look him up on the phone and I was suddenly reminded his name is John Kennedy. <laughs> and it made me think, oh God, I had that idea. I had that idea that involved Michael and Joe Dempsey and it was all about the American president. Yeah. So simply just That's one amazing. thing like that. Yeah, yeah. And that, so I went off and I started writing Power Play and then Trump's impeachment started and I thought, this is, this is incredible. <laughs> Well done, Tony. No, seriously, well done. I, I, Thank I, you very I'm much. really, really <laughs> proud of you because uh, you, you, you were able to change your life completely a few times. Yes. <laughs> You're not afraid of change uh, and you actually want to change also the justice system uh, in the yes, UK. Yes, I'd, I'd love to be in a position to do that. I know, I know. I think standing we for will never know, maybe one day. <laughs> standing for Parliament on top of everything else is just, I think it might be a step too far. <laughs> <laughs> you never know, you never know. But anyway, also, you know, uh, talking about this, you know, and advocating for this is good yes. so yeah well I, I do figure yeah. I mean I have a small platform now which other barristers don't have because yeah. of the books of course and yeah. I can't you know I can't make it the priority I can't make it the thrust because the books have to be the thrust yeah, yeah. Uh, but at the same time you know it does give the opportunity to talk to yourself and so yes. and you know I've, I've done a few tv news shows on I, I did a I, I um, guest produced a show on radio 5 on this subject so it's, it's getting the message out there. It's, it's not quite as important. much as a secret barrister, but yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> which is not me. Uh, well done, well done. So listen, now we are at the final five question moment. Okay. It's a fire up of uh, questions, so please try to be fast okay. and furious. <laughs> and then, and then we'll, we'll edit out anything inappropriate. Of course. <laughs> Actually, no, I'm not sure. <laughs> be careful. <laughs> what the people would never guess about you if they don't know you? Uh, can I admit something sad? I, I absolutely love films that star Hugh Grant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which I don't think, when it, when the whole persona that people build up or that the media build up and uh, you know, the, the, the limited media that I get, I'm not entirely sure people would, uh, people would know that. But if I'm watching TV and a Hugh Grant film comes on, I have to watch it. I love it. I mean, some of them are terrible, but fine. I still have to watch <laughs> You're it. You're <fine. laughs> Which is your spirit animal? Spirit animal, tiger. The tiger, I love tigers. Yeah. Uh, or a polar bear. Oh, it might be a polar bear. Yeah? Yeah, I think the tiger might have to go. I it love both, but maybe, yeah, maybe I can see you more polar bear. <laughs> <laughs> well, Victoria bought me a, uh, adopted me a polar bear, um, which I've never heard anything about ever since, so I'm not sure how that works. But. That's funny. What did you learn from your past relationship or your actual relationship, actually? Um, my relationship with Victoria? Yeah. Ooh, that I'm not often right. Apparently. You didn't know that before. <laughs> I was quite sure that I was right about everything, but apparently I'm not. <laughs> I take the side of Victoria. <laughs> of course you do. Everyone of does. Of course. <laughs> what would be your superpower if you were a superhero? Um, strength or flying. I'm not sure which one. It would basically be Superman, but he's got all of them. Yeah. Of so course, of course. See, as you know, Tony Kent is, is, is my writing name. Yeah. There's a reason it's Tony Kent. Is if, you, if you look around our house, you will see Superman memorabilia everywhere. Okay, so. uh, and it was Victoria's idea that my writing name should be Kent. Yeah, it's a great Clark name. Kent. It's a great name. And, um, and so, yeah, it's very difficult as a, someone who grew up obsessed with Superman to just choose one. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. <laughs> you can have it all. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, my superpower is to have Superman's powers. Yeah. <laughs> And the final one, what is the meaning of life? Meaning of life? Um, oh, that's difficult, isn't it? That's a, a very big philosophical question for a fast answer. I think it's got to be a mixture of living well, 
and raising your children well. And I think that's that really is it. You should live well, you should treat everyone well, and you should ensure that in the next generation, your child is doing the same, or your children are doing the absolutely, same. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, thank you, Tony, for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Let me show your book. This is Tony's latest book. It was published yesterday, so please uh, go and buy it and read it because it's wonderful. And thank you for being here at Unleashed the Game Changers. Let me know what you think about, leave comments and share with all your friends via all your social media. And see you soon to the next episode.